0: Couple announcements before we get started. If you want, you can open your Bibles to First Cor- or sorry, Second Corinthians chapter one. Second Corinthians chapter one. Hey, one of the things, this is kind of a side note before I get started on my announcements, uh, kind of a word of encouragement for us as a church. Something I want to encourage us in as a fellowship. Um, one of the things that that, that enhances, changes your, your church experience is, you know, I talked about it last week, that in Acts 2.42, there's the four pillars of the early church. And two of the four pillars, who, who remembers last week what they were I highlighted, that two of the four have to do with something. Anybody remember? Fellowship. Fellowship. Very good. So in, in that, you know, fellowshipping with like-minded people is important in your Christian living, especially um, here in Tooele, really, where we're, we're so outnumbered, and maybe having evangelical, like-minded believers around us is not always the easiest task. And, you know, if you, if you come to church and, and you greet people as you come in and as you leave and it's a hi and a bye and maybe after like six months you remember the first letter of their name and <laughs> then uh, after a while. But, you know, to um, I'd encourage you. This is what my encouragement for you this morning is. I want to challenge each one of us. I want you to see somebody that you've hide and bide with for a couple months in church and you've seen and I want you to invite them out to dinner. Invite them out to breakfast. Invite them Saturday early for a breakfast. Invite them to get together with you outside of church. And so if, you know, and and you guys have to do that yourself. Sometimes, you know, I have people come to me and they say, yo, pastor, I'm starving for fellowship. And and it's on my shoulders like, oh, I got to fix this. Well, What am I going to do with it? I don't know. I I wear it because it's heavy. But I kind of want to take it off and, and give it back to them in that, yeah, I think the church needs to promote fellowship and we do our best to do that you know, one of the things that, that we, one of the reasons why we built the coffee shop was to promote fellowship. And to some extent it's working. You know, you used to come out of the parking lot into the building and you come right into the sanctuary. And that's, that's kind of weird. You know, I, that, that wouldn't be the way we'd build a church anywhere if we had our, our choice, but that was the setup that God gave us. And we used it for a lot of years. Well, now we have the opportunity. We have some breakfast um, foods available. And again, those are not for us to make money. It's never about making money. It's it's about promoting fellowship, and so we'd like to see you guys come early, and you know, and we have that back room too, the conference room that we we don't use. But if it grew and people did start taking advantage of it, eventually that that front room, the conference room, could be a little breakfast room where you know you could meet somebody here early for a cup of coffee and a croissant and um, hang out and fellowship together. But so here's the challenge. So all that I don't want you to lose the challenge. The challenge was, I want you to invite somebody out to dinner, lunch, breakfast, um, in church. Um, this week, next week, and the coming weeks. Amen? Sammy inspired me, man. <laughs> Thanks. Um, all right. Hey, so as far as our um, year in stuff, I don't have our um, year in totals today. So what we do is um, we compile each month, and then we send those off to our accountant, which happens to be in California. So the same accountant that we've always used, they actually donate all of their services to Tooele Springs. So it's a, it's a huge blessing that... It's free, and they're, they're, um, Jack is one of the elders at our at our home church, and when Lydia and I planted this church, he does our personal taxes, and then he said, hey, we want to do your church finances, and we'll donate all that stuff as part of our gift to you guys. And so now for seven years, they've been doing that for us for all free. So we send that to all of our stuff to them. They finalize it. They send it back. We haven't got the, the January or the year-end one back yet. I was hoping to have it. But um, as soon as I do, I'll go over the final numbers, and those numbers will be like, kind of the breakdown of where all the money got spent all year. And then that it comes in an envelope and a file. It's about 12, 14 pages long. Um, I'll have that available on that week as well as anybody wants to look at it. It's open. The book will be open for anybody who wants to see it at that time. Um, but a few of the simple numbers that I have this year is, um, our tithe total from 2020 was $325,926. Yeah. So, Uh, Again, you know, praise the Lord and thank you for you guys, because there were um, in 2020, there was you know, there's every once in a while we get a big check um, and we got a couple in 2020. But but the majority of that is just everybody's weekly commitment to believing and monthly commitment to believing in what God has called them to do personally. And it's a lot of little gifts that add up three hundred and twenty five thousand nine hundred twenty six dollars. So that's everything that goes into the receiving program. So the number is probably a little bit higher than that. The guys who count the money could probably give you a little better um, idea. I could take a wild guess, but any cash that comes into the offering that's not accounted for. So if somebody just drops a $20 bill in there that's receipted and is deposited, but it doesn't, it, I don't have to write a receipt to anybody for that 20 bucks. I don't know where it came from. So it's not in that number. So any, any unaccounted for cash Would it would maybe I don't know what that number is, Brian, take a wild guess or something, maybe 10,000 more. Oh, 25 percent of what we count every week. If that's the case, then that number would be somewhere around 50,000 a year, 75,000 a year. So our total giving would go up to close to 400,000 a year. So that's that's good, huh? Um, And then. In the bank, as of this a.m., Lydia and I checked the bank statements. Our bank statement is um, $77,537.98 is what we have in the bank today. So, um, and then, as you guys know, in 2020, we, um, we had a good financial year. In that, entering 2020, we, when we bought this building, we paid 600000 for it. Um, the church didn't have any credit, so we were having a hard time finding a bank that was going to loan us uh, the money that we needed. So in order to make the deal work, the seller had to carry back um, $90,000. So we had a second on this building, and then the property that we bought, we had a second on the property. And so um, going into 2020, we had two seconds, one for $90,000, one for $40,000. Um, and all the money that we had, we were spending, and we also had about $17,000 in back taxes that we owed um, from the 11 months. Because once we got in the building, we're tax exempt from being in the building, so we won't pay any more taxes on this building moving forward. But we did owe owe taxes on the property and the building that we're in, so we had some back taxes. I didn't pay them right away because I used the money to buy the stuff that you guys see around you, this carpet you're standing on and the drywall. And I said, the taxes can wait. And so we we did that, and we we held off for a while and just used all the money that we had to, to build. And you guys remember that year? Do you remember when I popped that... Confetti here on stage. That was the one-year celebration of remodeling this whole building. And, and to that point, and that was November of 19. So then going into 20, we, we were pretty much not done. We still got stuff that needs to be done. We've done some work in 2020 in the cafe. We redid the, the tables and did some things. But a lot of the construction in November of 19 was done. So coming into 2020, our vision was to pay all that debt. And um, miraculously... We have 100% paid all the debt. So we paid the 90 back. Amen. It's, it's, it's in your little letter. But in 2020, we paid the 90,000 back that we owe on this building. So that second is gone. We, we paid the 40 that we owed on the second on the property. That's gone. We sold the property, which was a big a big uh, way that, 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 that a lot of that happened. And then we, we bought the property for 110,000. We sold it for 425,000. And that was t- just a total God thing that, that, we first of all, we were able to buy it for that, and God was in it. When we bought the property, we, uh, we felt like there was two, two kind of purposes for the property. Number one, if one day we would build a church on it ground up, and number two, we felt like from the concept that maybe if, it, if that didn't happen, because that's, uh, that's a huge project, and that property was just a little too small for the vision that we had, um, it w- would have maybe barely fit. So the other vision that we felt God gave us was maybe that property would um, make money someday that we could use to invest somewhere else. And that's the way it ended up working out. So um, we carried back on the property because of Corona. The the buyers couldn't get their loan. So they gave us a hundred down and then they're making payments to us for five years or until they get their loan funded. And so with that hundred thousand and then with the tithes and the offerings and um, and a supernatural gift, we were able to pay back the taxes, both seconds, and everything's paid, done, and um, so now we have zero debt. The only really debt we have is our bills, and I don't know, like I don't even necessarily call that debt. We owe, uh, as of today, our mortgage on the building is four hundred thousand nine hundred and thirty-six dollars. Our building's worth about seven or eight hundred thousand, so um, we're definitely not upside down in our building. Our, our monthly payment on the on the building is about twenty six hundred a month, twenty five something a month. Um, and so we have that. And then um, many of you guys know, we also leased um, parking spaces to the post office. And so we have an income from the post office for 20 spaces out here in our parking lot, which works out really great because besides December, when they're working on Sunday's they, um they're not here when we're here, we're not here when they're here. And it's the $1,700 a month that they pay us to lease those spaces. So we have the $1,700 a month income on the, the parking spaces, on the land, um, the sale of the land, the monthly payment is about twenty seven hundred a month that we receive in income. Um, you know what compound interest is like the eighth wonder of the world. I've never been on this end of it though. <laughs> I've always paid it, but you know it's. It, it, and you know the thing was we gave the, the buyers we gave them in the same deal, amazing deal, probably a little better deal than what they would have got at their bank. So they got a great deal. We got a great deal. They're making the same payments they would have made, but like on a monthly payment on a it's like twenty six something, but it's just called twenty seven hundred right now, especially being because. As you guys know, their interest rate is about, I think about around 5%. Um, and, and so on a $2,600 payment, 15 is interest and 11 is principal. So we're making 1500 bucks a month on, on just that right now until they, they pay it off. So again, that all happened in 2020, and um, now we have 77000 in the bank. We really don't have any, any bad debt, and, and God is good. And I'll have the numbers for you next week or when we get them. Praise the Lord. I'll, I'll have some numbers for you next week, but also kind of want to brag a little bit about uh, what we did in 2020 as far as giving, um, you know, to, to missions and those kind of things. Um, and, and, I, and I, you know, we, we've been generous as a church. Not, not as generous, actually, as we've been in the past, but um, to catch everybody up to speed, and I, I feel like I'm rambling on now, but I just do want to say this. Um, we, we always have a vision for us as a church that we want to be a church that gives away, um, you know, what, what we receive, that we're constantly receiving and giving, receiving, and giving. We don't want to hold on to it. We don't want to save it because it's a long story that I've told many times. But um, I really believe that God blesses those that, that give and those that when we as a church, when we support missions around the world and, and support our community and, and that we're giving, that God is, is refreshing. And I can't tell you how many times to one of our missionaries or, or a project or something that we gave benevolence to that within the week we got it back. Vlad Vlad is our missionary in the country of Georgia. And last time he was here, we gave him $4,000. And, and uh, we wrote that check on Sunday. And I think before he cashed the check, supernaturally, like 3900 came in that week that we normally wouldn't have gotten. It happens all the time just like that. As you give it out, God gives it back. And, and again, one of the things that we said as we were shifting our vision a little bit is that we want to enter into a position as the church grows and as we get some years behind us that we're focused on some foreign missions and on giving and, and to the point where we're we're doing missions as a church. That's something we haven't done as a church yet, but where we have opportunity for you guys to go on missions and do missions and do some, whether we do them locally or here in the United States or we do foreign and um, those types of things. But we did have a, a season, about a two-year season recently, where... Uh, we had to stop giving as much as we wanted to or would like to give in missions and giving out so that we could focus on our base. And that's just wise. It's just wise counsel that uh, we receive that you you spend a season as a church, especially a a young church, a growing church, and the broader you build your base, long-term, the more that we can give out in missions and the more we can do. So sure, it means that we're going to take a year or two and we're not going to be able to do as much, but if we, we fix what we got and we grow what we got, Moving forward, we'll be in a better position to give, and that's exactly what we did. We took that year, we paused. Not only did I not, you know, pay missions, I didn't even pay taxes for a year. <laughs> so, but we were, like I said, those, we're in a position now, and now we don't pay taxes as a church. That was all stuff that we did have to pay on the property because um, you pay taxes as a 501c3 until you put a building on it. So I thought about going up there one day and taking like two sticks and leaning them together putting a sign on it saying they have a building on our property, now we don't pay taxes. But we were paying taxes. Another reason why God um I think led us and it was wise for us to sell the property when we did, because even if we hung on to it, building a church ground up is about a four million dollar project. Until we were a four million dollar church could have been a while. And and every year that that we hung on to that property we were paying um uh, between ten and twelve fourteen thousand dollars a year in taxes. And that over the years was going to add up as well as we just held on to the property. So um, and the timing was perfect. So again, God led us as we sold that property this year. And, um, you know, if we ever do have to go buy again, God can do, can do another miracle like he did last time and provide for us what we need. Amen. All right. If you're new or a guest, I apologize for that. Um, you're gonna have to sit through it one more time though. When I get the end of year numbers, uh, we'll go through there. If you have your Bibles, um, any questions, I know it's kind of crazy form for some questions, but anybody wild enough to answer a financial question, ask me how much I make. <laughs> next time i next time i say does anybody have a question i'm going to say besides rick <laughs> anybody else anything vision stuff write it down text it to me if you have a question we'll, we'll try to get those answered for you and then like i said in a couple of weeks we'll get that uh, year in financials back and we'll briefly go over those as we did all right first corinthians chapter sorry, sorry i'm not going to so stuck in my head. Second Corinthians chapter one. We're going to begin in verse number eight. Now, if you'll remember, last week we talked about the, the first part of this this letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians is comfort. Remember, we, I have them highlighted in my Bible. I'm looking at them right now, in um, chapter number one, in verse three. All comfort. Who comforts? To comfort those who are in trouble. With the comfort, selves are comforted. Consolation, consolation, comforted, consolation, comfort. And that Paul was writing with the idea of bringing comfort to the Corinthian church. And I told you guys last week that joy is something that as believers we have to, do you remember the phrase I used, two feet? Jump on with two feet, that God is interested in your joy. And that as Christians we're not supposed to be grumpy. You know, we don't want to be known as Christians, listen, catch this, we don't want to be known as Christians for what we're against. And unfortunately that's the way the world wants to label us. That's the way your enemies and your detractors want to label the church. And, and unfortunately, there's, there's some folks out there, enough folks out there that call themselves Christian who who make a living and make a, a, a statement by what they're against. The the the, the Baptist Foxborough Church, whatever it was in Florida, who who made a name for themselves, a national name, by standing on um, street corners with signs that says God hates faggots and um, with rallying at, at, at biker things and, and, and you know, you turn or burn and, Supposedly, in the name of Jesus, when I promise you that that Jesus wouldn 't act that way, Jesus would never do anything like that, and that 's not christ like but that 's out there and and so the world, even for you when you call you, you know tell a friend or you, you say or you identify yourself as a Christian, sometimes you're going to be put under a category that is not your heart that you don 't believe but but it 's out there because that the, the we get a bad name, but we don 't want to be known. what we're against, right? You know, we we were for so much. Yeah, we have some things that we believe are sin. We've read Romans one and we can't deny what Romans one says. We can't deny what the word of God says. There's a list of, of, of things. The Bible says that if you practice such things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, fornications and homosexuality and, and on and on and on this list of, and, and seven times, five to seven times. It is this list is repeated in the new testament of things that if you practice such things not not if you've been guilty of or if you've committed because god forgives and will forgive and i'm guilty of so many of those things in that list that god has forgiven me for that's not i'm not in that category but those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of god and when you see somebody when you know somebody who's practicing such things your heart burdens for them because you want to see them go to heaven you want them to know the truth and you know what your bible says so again, we get this um, label of always what we're against. And then, and then as a believer, I'm, I'm getting ready to go to Dallas. Um, I, I fly out this afternoon where I'm going to do a funeral service. And I've been praying. I was praying this morning and I was trying to pray for you guys and for church this morning as I do on Sunday mornings. And I, I just kept, I couldn't. All I could just praying for this, this certain situation that I'm about to go into because I want to share the gospel with these people. And and I and I want to I did pray for you guys by the way. I kept saying, Lord, I was supposed to be praying. For, no. And I kept my heart just kept going back to this this situation. And, and it's this this dilemma that, you know, these people they're 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 living in sin. They they believe they know God. They think they're going to heaven. They're good people. And and, and yet I want to lovingly and, and caringly share with them Jesus. Without coming across as, oh, you're going to hell. You're not married and you're living together. You're, you know, on and on or whatever it is. And how do I show love and let them know that I love? You guys ever heard the saying? And it's true and and it's cliche, but sometimes cliche is is spot on. People don't care how much you know. Can we know the rest? Until they know how much you care. And it it couldn't be anything more true. You know, in sharing the gospel and sharing your faith with these folks and the situation that I'm about to go into, you know, my, my, first, my first tactic has to be how do I first show them that I love them and that I really care about them. And the things that I want to share with them are out of love. And, and you know, l- listen, Satan has a defense mechanism that he sets up. Some, some of the people that I share the gospel with, some religious folks that are, that are in my neighborhood that I share the gospel with, it's programmed in them. Called a shutdown mode um, in in within um, Islam, in certain Muslims, if you share the faith with them, they have a trigger, and as, and and when you trigger that, they shut down. My neighbors, when if I trigger a certain thing in them, they shut down, and they're programmed, and they're told at that point that I'm a hater, that that they don't for whatever reason, then they can't hear anything else I say after that. And 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 the world has the same. Satan has the same defense mechanism. To, to protect people in the lies that he's given them. So, for example, with, with one particular person, she believes that Christians are so judgmental and we think we know who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. And, and as soon as you mention heaven or hell or a suggestion of how people get to heaven or hell, she shuts down. She won't hear anything else you say. And she's just programmed that she's, she's fine. She's going to heaven. God, God is, you know, a God of love and she's a good person. And, and how do you get through that? How do, you, how do you lovingly tell her without... You know, because as soon as you start talking about heaven and hell, she's going to shut down. Amen? All right, so that's what I was going to say. This is what I was going to say. In, um, in last week's message, when I encouraged you guys about your joy, and if you're hurting, to get your eyes off yourself. I told you, if you're going through something, find somebody else who's going through it and, and encourage them. And you're going to be miserable, and you're going to be stuck in your misery if you're the type of person that, that has has to rely on everybody else around you and what everybody else is doing for your joy, that you have to be in charge of your joy. But as I was praying this morning, um, and maybe some proof I did pray for you guys a little bit this morning, one of the things I felt God was saying that I should say about last week's sermon that I want to clean up a little bit. Um, I, I don't want to give you guys the impression through last week's message about having to you know, be fixed and be okay that it's, not, um, that it's okay not to be okay. okay. I want to make sure that I'm clear about that. That it's okay if you're not okay. That it's okay for you to be going through something difficult and be down a little bit. And and so I hope last week's message wasn't harsh to anybody who is going through something in the moment, in the the eye of the storm. What I'm talking about is not as you're in the eye of the storm. Sometimes when we're in the eye of the storm, things are hard and we do need some people to come around us and we, we need a little extra help. But as you get through the storm then it's time for you to reach out and and go beyond. So if you're in the middle of something, that's okay not to be okay. But what I will say is that it's just not okay to stay there. You know, it's not okay to be broken over a death in your family, to be broken over a situation in your life for a long, long period of time. That's not God's will for your life. And then last week's sermon does apply in that situation. Jump on it with two feet. Find your joy. Get your eyes off yourself and go and serve somebody who's going through something similar to what you're going through. Start loving on somebody and helping somebody else and through you giving of yourself, you're going to find the healing that you need was the message. Amen? You guys following me? Maybe it's just me. I feel like everybody's like zoned out. No? Okay. So, it's okay not to be okay. Let me, let me take you a little example. Um, in Israel, there's, it's not necessarily Bible, it's more like Jewish culture. But I, I do believe that the Jewish culture comes from the heart of God and it comes from the Bible. And many of the Jewish customs and cultures come from the Old Testament law of Moses. But to this day, um, Jewish culture is that when somebody dies or you have a death in your family, and this is God's thing, and I always say, you know, I always tell people as, as far as death. And now this can apply to any area of your life, whether it's divorce, whether it's, you know, um, financial trouble, disease, sickness, anything. But if there's a death, and you have a, a death that's close to you, the, the death was never designed by God. When Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, why did he cry? What was he crying over? Lazarus' death. Lazarus death. Was he crying, what, what was the purpose? He was crying because he was sad, his friend died. So if somebody, something happens to you in any situation, is it okay to cry? Like it's healthy to cry. It's good to cry. I wish my wife would cry every once in a while. <laughs> she doesn't cry. She has a black heart. <laughs> no, I tease her because she, she's not an emotional person. And so, like, we go to a movie. We went, and this is old now. I need a better, newer example. But we went, because we won't rec- Remember the movie I Am Sam, Anybody? Okay, it's got to be one of the most tear-jerking movies you've ever seen in your life. My, my son, Luke, who's a, a freshman in college now, he was in a car seat, so it was that long ago. He's 19, so it was that long ago. I, I'm ripping his blanket out of his, out of his, off of him because I, I'm using it to wipe my tears because I was crying so hard. And I look at Lydia and no, not a tear. I'm like, how can you watch I Am Sam and not cry? And she's just not emotional. Just you know how she is. She's just mentally tough that way, and emotionally tough. And you know sometimes your greatest strengths are your greatest weaknesses. And not that you gotta cry through, i Sam, I guess. But I, I'm the opposite. Like I'll cry at anything. Like I'll cry at cartoons. You know I'll cry when the wind blows. I'm not really a great example either. You know when I was a kid, and this again goes way, way back now. We were watching an old movie. Do do me a favor. It's called The Champ. Silver Spoon. He was a boxer. He was a professional boxer, and his son, and he dies in the movie. Anybody? Rick, you know. The champ, Rick Schroeder, the champ. Nobody, God, not one person. God, boy, was the champ. He dies in the movie, and his son is crying, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm crying at, at, at this movie, and it's so it's like it's like an I Am Sam movie, it's so sad. And then and then my my older brother was like, he starts yelling at me. He's like, dude, stop crying. The movie's been over for half an hour, and you're still crying. But crying is is can be and, and is healthy and God allows it is my point. Jesus wept because he was sad Lazarus died. Now Jewish culture is that you when someone dies, you hire professional mourners because it shows that you care and that you're heard and that you and so you because the, the more and the louder the wails are, the more that you cared for this person. So you would actually hire professional mourners who would come and and they would just put on the dog and wail, and cry, and scream. And, and, and this is culture, because there was a season of, at the time of death where you just really let it all out. And then you have, um, where God gave the Jewish culture, you have 30 days of this, or th- allowed 30 days of mourning, deeply mourning. You don't have to get out of bed. And then on day 31, according to the Jewish culture, and I'm sure what God kind of laid it out, it's time now to get out of bed. And it's time to get back to life and stop crying. Now, it's not over, though. God's sympathy is not done for you. It doesn't just say, okay, 30 days, now get over it. 30 days of intense, whatever it takes, you go for it. you got 30 days. On day 31, you got to go back to work. you got to get on with life as normal. But you can still mourn. You can still be sad until day 360 or 365 for us, one year. On the one-year anniversary of the death, you go to the, the, the cemetery where the person was buried, and you have a birthday party, the one year birthday party of their death. you bring gifts, you bring flowers, and you celebrate and it's a celebration because the person is in heaven and their spirit is gone and and then on on um, day one of year number two you 're not allowed to mourn anymore you got to be over it that was that's god 's prescription, Jewish culture for for how they mourn and, and I believe that that, that there's something in that, that that's God's will and I really find that Bible is that it's okay not to be okay. It's not okay to stay there. God has compassion and sympathy as we go through things. And He gives you a season. He gives you a month to, to really just... Have, and, and what's the right way to mourn? You know, I've been around a lot of mourning. I've been around death in my personal life but also as a pastor I go through it with all of you and I went through it with all of my, my church that I was at before I got here for 15 years. And so I've seen a lot. And I've seen a lot of different ways. When Lydia's mom passed away, um, Pastor Gerald, the next day, she passed away on a Friday. On a Saturday, he was cleaning her things and bagging them up and getting them out of the house. Wow, someone said. Oh, that's wrong. Because that wow is like, you know, I kept the stuff in there for like seven years and I never touched it. And the toothbrush is still in the same place. Now, one is one right and one wrong? The guy who didn't you know, move anything for years and the toothbrush and, you know, so there's no really right or wrong way to mourn. Others will leave that stuff. and it takes a while and there's a season. But I really don't believe that, that, that you can judge somebody on how they mourn. You know, we mourn differently. For him, that's the way that he needed to deal with it. I mean, he has an g- amazing testimony of a faithful husband for 31 years who loved his wife like you can't imagine and gave himself for and served her. So it wasn't a matter of love. It's just the way he dealt with death and dying. And like I said, others deal differently. Um, But there's no right or wrong. But there's seasons. And God wants us to get well. Amen? All right, I think I've labored the point. Hey, we left off in verse number 8 last week. Let's pick it up there. It says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Look at your neighbor and say, Don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant of our trouble which we came to us in Asia. Do you guys remember the don't be ignorant? I, I see Amber punching Josh. What did he say to you? (laughs) You're stupid, he said to her. No, I didn't tell her that. This word ignorant doesn't mean stupid, by the way. Ignorant means that you haven't been taught yet. You haven't been educated. You haven't taken a class on it. It's not an insult. It's a lack of knowledge. Paul says, I don't want you to have a lack of knowledge concerning these things. This phrase in the Bible, listen, look at it with me. Verse number 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. How many times is that phrase repeated in the New Testament? I I gave this sermon like six weeks ago. Close. We said five, right? We found five. Now I'm drawing a blank. Was it seven? Five? It's right in there. We'll call it five, okay? At least five for sure. And every one of them is different. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning spiritual gifts. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning um, the rapture of the church. Um, Here is the same thing, that same phrase repeated, and this time... It's just something that God wants us to be aware of. And so when you you see that phrase in your New Testament, it's something that you should probably study a little bit, probably get in behind a little bit, because the Holy Spirit knew that in 2020, the areas where the church would be ignorant or have a lack of knowledge in were these exact areas. You know where the church struggles today? Spiritual gifts and and the exercising of speaking in tongues and prophecy and words of wisdom and words of knowledge and the spiritual gifts. That's an area of weakness in the church today. The area of the rapture, that's a weakness in the church today. All the areas where he said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, it draws an emphasis. And so here we have one. And basically what this one says is that he doesn't want us to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble. Whose trouble? Paul's trouble, which came to us in Asia. Now listen, what he's saying basically, the way I like to sum this up, is that Christian living is not easy. It's better. There's heaven at the end of it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Christian lit, being a Christian makes your life easy. That's never God's will for your life. Now, you're, you, you can go to lots of churches, and if you don't like that, I promise you, there's plenty of churches where you can go to, and they'll never talk about sin. They'll never teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because there was so much in there that they wouldn't know how to cover. And they won't deal with, with any of these things, and they'll come every week, and they'll tell you God's will for your life is to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And the pastor will drive an Escalade or two on 20s. He'll have a parking spot in the front where he pulls up and he gets out. And the elders come and grab his briefcases and his things. And, and he'll tell you God's will for you He'll wear a really nice suit every week. And, and he'll tell you that God's will for your life is to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. You know, the problem I have with that is that God's not very good at accomplishing his will then. Because not one person from Genesis to Revelation can we find in the Bible who was happy, healthy, wealthy all the time. Every one of them had what troubles, you know. It, it's better just to tell people the truth, you know. You want to preach this gospel that's so like, oh, it's so you know inviting to everybody and welcoming, and God wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and who couldn't get behind that? That's great. That'll sell. I'll buy that. The problem is, what happens when I run into trouble in life, real trouble? And the pastor gets up every Sunday and tells tells me how. You know, I don't have enough faith if I'm sick, and 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 God's will for me to be. And I'm like, well, all these other Christians, they're, they're 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 happy, healthy, and wealthy. You look around the church, and everybody's faking it. They're all happy, healthy, wealthy. How come I'm not? There must be something wrong with me, and it hurts people. And it's just not the truth. Life is life is life is messy. You know, you know what's 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 the truth? God's economy and the things that God specifically oversaw directly, they were all messy too. Pastor Gerald says, I would never say this unless I heard my pastor say it first, God loves drama. Something Pastor Gerald says. But it's true, really. You look at the Bible, especially highlighted in the life of Mary. You think, man, Mary, the virgin mother, the blessed among women, of all women. And you look at the scenario of the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, covered in troubles, covered in drama. From A to Z, drama. So, so God orchestrated it. And it's real life. And if you're going through drama, if you're going through ups and downs, trials and troubles, God's not mad at you. That's a lie of Satan. And especially in Utah, it's a religious lie. That God's mad at you. I'm gonna tell you today. Look at me. God's not mad at you. God loves you. You guys have children. How do you, how do you how do you love your children when they sin? You, you want to discipline them. Breaks your heart. But you love them. Are you guys a better parent than God is? God's a pretty good parent. And he loves you. You know. You know. One of the stories is. God went to Moses and, and in a famous story, and he said to Moses in the wilderness in the 40 years, he said, I want you to take that rod as, as the children of Israel had nothing to drink. And they were, they, were, they were complaining to Moses. And he said, Moses, take your rod and, and hit the rock and water will come out. And Moses took his rod and he hit the rock and water came out and took care of the, the children of Israel. And some time had passed and there was still no, no more water. And There was nothing to drink, and the children of Israel began to complain and murmur against God again. And they came to Moses again, murmuring and complaining. There was nothing to drink. And Moses went to God, and and God said, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. And Moses came back to the people after going to God, and he was angry within himself. And he looked at the people, and he said, You stiff necked people, when are you ever going to trust God? This is my paraphrase. When are you ever going to trust God? You've been in the wilderness 40 years. How many miracles have you seen? And you still don't believe in God's provision? And then he said, must I smite this rock a second time? And he took his staff and he hit the rock. And water came out. And then God pulled Moses aside. And he said, Moses, I told you to speak to the rock. And you hit the rock. And for that, you you will not enter the promised land. Now, that's hard. And you guys know this story, right? That's a very harsh, seemingly a very harsh punishment in that moment. Because of Moses' faithfulness with this stiff-necked group of people for 40 years as he put up with them as the first, first, you know, pastor figure in the Bible. For 40 years as he shepherded these, these, these two million people through the wilderness who made amazing, made so many mistakes. And Moses makes this one mistake and God says, you can't go in. Oh, terrible. Well, lots of reasons, lots of theological reasons why Moses couldn't go in. He got to go in eventually, right? Because Jesus, he appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so he got, he got to go in at that time. But the law could never lead the people into the Promised Land. Only, God, only Jesus. That's why Joshua, who, who is a form of Jesus and the name means salvation, Joshua led the people into the Promised Land. But that's, that's besides the fact. But Moses, when God came and pulled Moses aside... He said the punishment was because, number one, Moses broke the symbolism. What was the rock? The rock was Jesus. Jesus was smitten. When was Jesus smitten? Upon the cross. And He shed His what for us? His blood for us. And His blood is sufficient to forgive you of all your sins. And if you sin again, does Jesus need to be smitten again? Does He need to go back to the cross again? How, do, how are your sins forgiven now after Jesus has died on a cross? By faith, by speaking, by asking for forgiveness. And God was using Moses to set up this symbolism in the wilderness that the first time he hit the rock, that it was a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. And now after Jesus hangs on a cross, he'll never hang on a cross again. Now we come to him in New Testament by faith. And we speak to him and we ask And Moses broke this biblical picture that God was painting. But secondly, the second thing God said to Moses was, He said, "Listen, this is this long all that was to tell you this. This is what God said to Moses. He said, Moses, He said, the reason why you went into the Promised Land, the reason why you're in trouble right now, is because I'm not mad at the people, and you misrepresented me. Because the people were, you know, would have got the impression that God was what." Mad at them. And God said, Moses, I'm not mad at the people. Now you ask yourself, if there's ever a good reason for God to be mad at the people, this would be it. Why wouldn't he be mad at the people? He should be mad at them. So we tell ourselves sometimes, why is God not mad at me? He should be mad at me. Look, Does he know what I've done? Yeah, he knows what you did. It didn't stay in Vegas. God saw it all. And you brought it home with you. And he's still not mad at you. That's crazy, huh? That's the love of God. Because you're a child. And he cares for you. And just like you would for your child, he wants what's best for you. Listen, God wants you to drive the car of life out of the, out of the windshield, not the rearview mirrors. Any drivers in here? Any, any long, anybody got over a million miles on them? Truckers? A couple of you? Yeah. I, even, even if they're over a million miles on you. How well would you do driving cross-country and only using your rearview mirror? Not very, well. Not very well. And God doesn't want us to live life that way. What's, what's in your past? Leave it in your past. God says, I've forgiven it. I've thrown it into the sea of forgetfulness. I've washed it as white as snow. It's behind you. God wants you to drive through the window. You know, the Apostle Paul, as you guys know, I, I talk very highly of the Apostle Paul. One of the greatest examples of Christian... Um, success and living that that God's ever given us. And the apostle Paul understood something as as amazing as he was that he didn't take any credit for any of the the miracles and the ministry and, and, and the writing the Bible and all the things that he did. He didn't take any credit for any of it. He said, God, God did it all through me. I can't take credit for any of it. He said, Paul said, even the, the, the faith that I had to put in God. You think I could get at least credit for that because I had to, at some point, put my faith in God. He said, no, not even that. He said, God gave me that faith that I used to put in Him. He said, but the one thing, there is one thing that I can take credit for, or not even take credit for necessarily, but there's one thing that He personally has to do and be responsible for. Anybody remember what that was? The one thing? He said, I have to forget those things that lie behind and I have to press forward to the upward call in Christ Jesus. So the one thing you have is to forgive yourself. is to leave those things that are in your past in your past. And, and don't let the devil, don't let your, your neighbors, don't let religious folks tell you that God's mad at you because he's not. Amen? You know what I was going to do today? I was going to get in here and just cover scripture and not get off and go for it. Eesh. That was verse 8. That was verse 1. Verse number nine, it says, let me finish it, that we were bur- burdened beyond measure above strength, that we despaired even of life. We talked about this last week. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but God who raised the dead. So the context is that, um, you know, really this, this whole book could be called, um, or this whole section, I guess, would just be that. Uh, the misunderstood in the ministry. Paul's being misunderstood in the ministry. But you really, if you look at it, a lot of the characters in the Bible were misunderstood. Moses was misunderstood. David was misunderstood. All the prophets of the old Testament were misunderstood. Jesus himself was misunderstood. And so Paul is having a misunderstanding with the, the church that he planted in Corinth and they're starting to criticize him. One of the things they're two of the main things, but one of the things they're criticizing him for is that he said he was going to come to them in chapter 16, verse 5. I read it to you last week, and he didn't show up. And the other thing was they were, they were his detractors were starting to take that, that he said he was going to do something and he didn't do it, and turn it into, um, he's not even a real apostle. So he was defending his own apostleship. And so here he's telling them, listen, we had something really difficult going on that kept us from coming, even to the point where we despaired even of life. And so it, it can get to that point you know, and again, another proof that, you know, God's will for us is not always to be happy, healthy, wealthy, because the Apostle Paul, he got to a point where he was pretty discouraged. So again, it's okay to be okay. The Apostle Paul went through seasons where he wasn't okay. He, he was there just telling God, God, just take my life. Just take me home. This is too hard. This is too much. But he didn't stay there. And so he tells them we were despairing even of life. In verse 10 it says, Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust, that he will still deliver us. We covered these last week, huh? Because I remember talking about this. In verse 10 it says, who has delivered us, who is delivering us, and who will deliver us. So we talked about past, present, and future tense. Right? That God was working on your life before you were a Christian. God came in your life when you became a Christian. God will continue to work on your life through your sanctification until uh, you, you go home to be with Jesus that God is working in your life now in your sanctification. That's the process of becoming more like Jesus. And then he's going to continue to work after death in your glorification as he glorifies you and gives you a glorified body. And so God has been working, God is working, and God will continue to work in your life. You know, one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible for me is a verse where it says that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God will never give up on you. Somebody say amen. Jesus, who began a good work in you, He's not done with you. He's not going to put you on a shelf. You haven't done something so that He's going to forget you. He promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if I began a work in you, you may stumble. You may not be walking the way that I want you to walk right now. You may not be on the straight and narrow in this moment, but I'm not going to give up on you. And He who began a good work in you will complete it. Amen? Amen. And then he says in verse number 12, as we switch sections here, he says, for, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. So we don't want to respond, you guys, as Paul says here, in fleshly wisdom. Paul says, We were led of the Holy Spirit as we instructed you. That we, we gave you what God gave us. In Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 and 6, it says, lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways and He will direct your paths. Lean not on your own understanding. You know, sometimes the wisdom of God is not from earth. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him seek God, let him ask God. And I love the, I love the answer. And God who gives liberally, who gives without reproach, that God gives wisdom and he doesn't judge you and say, dummy, how come you don't know that? He gives liberally and without reproach. And so if you lack wisdom and this wisdom of God that directs and guides your lives, you want to know, you know, your, your pastor is not your number one counselor. Shouldn't be your go-to um, counselor. Now we're here for counseling. That's a service that we, we try to offer. And we do our best just to point people to Jesus, whether it's marriage counseling or life counseling and, um, you know, men to men, women to women. And, and yes, it is definitely something that we want to be here for you. But I, I, it can never be your, your first or your go to. Who, who is the great counselor? Who is the mighty counselor? It's Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And you go to him first, you go to his word first and you seek the counsel of God. You seek the counsel of the Holy Spirit. Proverbs three five and six. How many of you guys have it memorized? A couple of you. That's like if you're, if you're Christian, you got Proverbs three five and six memorized. Like you usually don't get in church unless you do. Like they stop you at the door. And what's Proverbs three five and six? John three sixteen. When I when I was first became a Christian, my pastor I uh, was in Hemet California. I was at a Calvary Chapel. I've been to Calvary Chapel I just happened to be Calvary Chapel everywhere just by the will of God. From the time I got saved in, in downtown L.A., there was the biggest church, in the church in my neighborhood it was a Calvary Chapel. And then when I moved to Hemet, I lived there about two years before I went to Bible college. It was a Calvary Chapel that I just happened to get involved with there, and I wasn't necessarily looking for Calvary Chapels. But my pastor, his name is Pastor Cliff Watson. They're still there. Um, and I was young. I was growing in Jesus. I'd just been saved about six months, nine months maybe. And Cliff said, I was asking him some questions, and he, some counsel, and he said, he said, Chris, he said, I want you to go home and read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And I said, okay, Pastor. So I get home, and I, and I go to my Bible, and I open it up, and I read Proverbs all of chapter 3. I skip chapter 4. I read chapter 5 and chapter 6. <laughs> he said, read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. <laughs> so I did. And I'm like, what was he talking about? I have no idea what the answer was. But he was talking about chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. And then in verse number 13, he says, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. As you have understood us in part that that we are your boast as you are also ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul is proud of them. He said he bragged on them. And of course they would have bragged on Paul like our pastor is the apostle Paul. And in the confidence I intended to come to you before that you might be a second benefit to pass by way of Macedonia to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly or the things I plan? Do I plan according to the flesh? No, that with me there should be no yes, yes, and no, no. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. So Paul's saying, I wasn't double-minded, double-tongued. I wasn't a yes man. I didn't just tell you what you wanted to hear. I intended fully with integrity when I told you I was going to come. You know, it's, it's bumming me out that Paul is having to work so hard to defend himself through, to these guys through this, but he is, and it's going to go on. And he's saying, I wasn't, you know, being a yes man. I fully intended to come to you. We had some trouble in, um, in Ephesus while we were there. And, and, and my yes is yes. And my no is no. And, and, and I'm in the Lord. And, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, and you don't want to be double-tongued and double-minded. I had a friend, you know, I grew up with, and he'd always just tell you what you wanted to hear. Hey, come by tonight. We're going to hang out. Oh, all right, cool, man. I'll be there. Never show up. Hey, what happened? Oh, I'm like, you never planned on coming. You just didn't want to tell me no. You thought it would be better just to say, oh, yeah, I'll be there because that's what I wanted to hear and not show up. And that's how he was. That's how he rolled. You just thought it was, I don't know, it was rude to tell you he wasn't coming. Well, I got news for him. It's, it's more rude, ruder, to tell me you're coming and not show up. But, but Paul says we didn't do that. You know, Jesus said, don't swear. It, not, not cursing. He said like, oh, I swear to God it's true. I swear to God it's true. If you talk that way, stop. It just makes, it makes me not trust you even more. If you have to swear about everything you say that it's true, Lydia says this sometimes, and she's an honest person. I'm just have it, but I tease her sometimes because she'll say, "Oh, in all honesty," or something like that. I'm like, "Oh no, to be honest." I'm like, "What? Every other time you weren't honest. What do you mean to be honest? Like this time you're going to be honest? Try not to say things like that. I know it's just phrases we use it unnecessarily, but yeah, somebody's swearing all the time. Jesus said, don't swear. He said you can't swear by heaven or hell anyways. He said just, you know, you, don't, you, you shouldn't have to talk to people and, and convince them you're telling the truth. This is how you convince people you're telling the truth. You want to know how? You tell the truth all the time. You let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if they don't believe you, you don't swear by it. You just let them not believe you until the truth comes out. And then eventually as the truth continues to come out and what they find is that if you're always telling the truth then you never have to swear anymore or to be honest with you or I'm telling you the truth this time and, and use those phrases. And so um, cut those phrases out of your vocabulary, especially if you're talking to me because I'm going to be like, are hey, you lying? You swear to God? As soon as you say, I swear, forget it. I don't care what you just said. I, forgot. I, already, I already forgot it. Now I'm worried about you said you swear. And Jesus said not to do it anyways. Just let your yes be yes, your no be no, verse 18. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. I don't know how many promises there are in the Bible. I looked it up today and the Google said... Uh, there was 5,300-something promises in the Bible. I didn't look them all up. I haven't counted them, so I don't know. But I know there's a lot. I wouldn't be surprised if there were over 5,000 promises in the Bible. And listen, every, all 5,000 of them, they're for you. And in you, they're yes and amen. And God's word and God's promise to you is yes and amen. That's an encouragement. And then he goes on and Paul says um, in verse 21, Now he who establishes us, With you in Christ has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our heart as a guarantee. So, listen the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you is a seal, it's a guarantee that you're saved, it's a guarantee that you belong to God. If the Holy Spirit of God lives in your heart, you'll go to heaven. You cannot lose your salvation. We can go on a circular argument about that. I believe you can leave your salvation. But I don't believe you can lose it. If you have it, there's a seal. And Jesus said, those that the Father have put in my hands, of these I've lost none. I, what I don't preach is that you can ask Jesus in your heart one time in church camp in the fourth grade and then live the rest of your life like hell and think you're going to heaven because you said a sinner's prayer in back at church camp in the fourth grade. Jesus, the Bible says this is what salvation is. Jesus, the Bible says Believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Acts 17, the simplest form of salvation in the whole Bible is in Acts 17. If you believe on the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. But I want to tell you something, to be honest. This is true. And this is simple and this is salvation. To be honest with you. You You know, Jesus did say truly, truly. I say it for emphasis. Maybe I should say like my brother says when he preaches like 500 times in every sermon. Listen. Listen, listen, listen. Um, Truly, listen. You have to define the word believe. You have to have a biblical understanding of what the word believe means. The Bible says that the demons believe and tremble. Do the demons go to heaven based on their belief? But if you believe in the Lord, you'll get saved, the Bible says. So you have to define believe. Believe carries with it um, a few things. Surrender and submission and... Um, you know, it carries with it a full surrender of your heart and life to the Lord Jesus, obedience, and some of these things. Now, I'm not putting works into salvation. Okay, salvation comes by faith, but but believing is is action, right? Hey, Sam, there's a bomb under your seat that's going to go off in about ten seconds. Do you believe me? <laughs> no, <laughs> good. But if you did believe me and you, you said yes, I believe you, and you sat you sat there. Yeah, you wouldn't believe me because you didn't. If you really believe me, you would get up and run. Unless you want to go see Jesus. No, what he said is that he would cover his wife. Protect her. Aww. But there's action. When you really believe something is true, there's an action behind it. Amen? All right, we got to go, 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 go. Um, so God has sealed you. And then in verse 22 and he's given you the Holy Spirit. Let me just say this too on that, just really quickly, then we will, we will finish here. Um, I, I, I've i only attended a few churches outside of Calvary Chapel visiting different things over the years Though I've been from time to time, but um, my aunt who led me to Jesus was very hyper Pentecostal. I mean, they were as Pentecostal as you get, and her name was Lydia, my aunt Lydia. I give her credit. I believe that she's the one that led me to Jesus. She was the first call that I made when I asked Jesus in my heart and she took me to church a couple of times as a kid in a very hyper pentecostal church. And one of the things that happened in my aunt's church was that they would um, come up every week to get saved. Because if they sinned during the week, they were afraid of something and so they would actually have prayers of salvation for the same people weekly. And you know, as I began to learn the Bible, I realized that there's a there's a problem in this theology. And that you, you don't come up weekly to get saved. If you're a born again believer in Jesus Christ, you're saved. You don't need to get saved again. We do offer prayers of rededication because sometimes we backslide and we, we're not walking with the Lord as closely as we want to. And so we'll offer a prayer of, um, you know, of rededication. But if you're saved, you don't need to pray another prayer to get saved. You, don't, you haven't lost your salvation. You're sealed is what this verse says. You're sealed and given the Spirit as a guarantee. Do you realize that you're special? You're, you're better than John the Baptist Jesus said because you have the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of you. Nobody in the Old Testament had that. Very few were the Holy Spirit, Samson and a few others. The Holy Spirit would come as a gift, come for a season, but not live inside like the New Testament after Jesus died on a cross and rose again. That became possible. And that spirit is a guarantee. And then he says, moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. So verse 23, again, is another verse of Paul um, um, defending himself for this missed trip to the Corinthian church that they were giving him a hard time about. And he says to spare you. Now, uh, what was he sparing them of? Uh, in 1 in Corinthians chapter 5 and 7, Paul says... Um, of the previous letter I wrote. So everybody believes that actually there was 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Corinthians, and we only have two. For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit, that first letter that Paul mentions twice in 1st Corinthians, we don't have it. So the Holy Spirit didn't include it in the canon. It's not supposed to be there. Some say that it would have been before 1st Corinthians, so this is actually be like 3rd Corinthians if we had it, um, but that it was a very harsh letter. And it was much like chapter or, uh, the first book, where he's correcting a lot of things. But in nonetheless, we don't have it. But, but Paul, um, he, he, he writes that letter. And then in the second letter, again, he's very corrective and he's very disciplined. Now, in this, in this letter, the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul, Paul's heart is relationship. And, and he doesn't want to um, be harsh. And he, he's dealt with those things. And he saw that they've made those things better. And he emphasizes comfort. And he emphasizes in this second letter when I come to you I don't want to have to deal with those problems we were dealing with I just want to have fellowship with you in Jesus I want I want things to be have be full of joy when I get there and so I'm writing to encourage you and to change that and Paul here is putting relationship before responsibility and responsibility is important and Paul dealt with responsibility but listen parents I want to tell you something there's big seasons I think of parenting I Maybe mean, this, this is a personal opinion that you put relationship above responsibility, and if you constantly put responsibility above relationship, you're gonna you're gonna. The Bible says for you men not to make your sons bitter, not to embitter your children. And one of the ways you can make your children bitter is if you only put re, uh, responsibility above relationship. Sometimes they've blown their responsibility, but the relationship is more important, and you need to come in love. And, 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 and having relationship is more important. Maybe not even with just, just our children, but with those across the aisle and those in life. You know, Lydia's dad is amazing at this. It's one of the life lessons I learned from my pastor, is that he's very, very good at putting relationships before responsibility. And, he, and you know, as, as, a, as a son-in-law, as a, an employee, as a, you know, his, his, one of, you know, he's my pastor, that he loves me first and he cares about me. And so we need to put, and Paul says that here. I want to put relationship before responsibility. And then the last verse is really important. We've got to cover that. We'll have the worship team come on up as we cover this last verse. And so he says, I didn't come, verse 23, because I would have had to spank you again, and I didn't want to do that. So verse 24, listen. I'm telling the truth. I swear, I'm not lying. Just kidding. Look Look at 24 with me. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for you, for your joy, for by faith you stand. Now, Paul says, not that we have dominion over you. What does that mean that Paul didn't have dominion over you? Okay. Now, I don't want to bag on anybody's church. This is just from my personal experience. So if you attended one of these churches and it was totally different, maybe that way. I don't know if they're all this way or not, but I knew a guy. And he attended a church. It was called the Church of Christ. And within this church, um, there was a discipleship model as a member of the church that you had to get under. So there would be elders that would be over you, and then the elders would be under the pastor. And and basically, the, the discipleship is they were discipling you in Jesus. And part of the way that you came under their discipleship was you had to get their permission about the decisions that you made in your life. And because you were a believer or maybe a new believer or whatever, that you needed help knowing when to buy a car and, and how much rent you should pay and all these things. And really, to, in this particular situation with this person I knew in this church, it, it was a lot of dominion. It was a lot of control. And, you, and your church would tell you, again, you couldn't buy a new car unless you went to your leader in your church and got permission to buy that new car. That's dominion or lordship. Jesus said in the book of Revelation, he hates the churches that lord over the people. And lording over the people is drawing disciples unto ourselves and any kind of religious system. I know we're late, you guys, and I know the worship team is here and and we're going to close right now, but I want you to catch this, okay? Any kind of religious system, so stay with me for a minute. The religious systems where um, you need some function of the pastor, the church, the elders, the leaders, in order for you to have full access to God in order for you to receive revelation from God, that you need somebody within the organization to give you that or to help you find that. That's lordship. We don't practice that here. That's not biblical. You have as much access to God as I do or anybody else does. You, you can decide based on counsel from Jesus himself what's the best decision for your finances without any help from me or anybody else. And, and in these churches, and Paul says this, we're not that. We didn't come to have dominion over you. And I don't know where, and I've heard of others, I've talked to others who have been involved in churches where where they practice this type of model. But it's not biblical. Matter of fact, you know, I want to be careful of anything that Jesus says he hates. Me personally, nobody has dominion over me. But authority comes from 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 the bottom up. Meaning this, I have willingly put myself under submission of my senior pastor. When I moved to Tooele, now, he signed my checks for 15 years, and he was my boss. So if I wanted to check the next week, I would do exactly what he said. But, but I, I made a choice to be under the leadership of somebody, and, I, and then the person God put in my life was my senior pastor, and I was on staff in there. When I moved to Tooele, he didn't sign my checks anymore. And he even told me many times, you can do what you want. But I made a choice that I was going to do whatever he told me to do because I wanted to willingly put myself under submission and dominion of somebody. But that comes from the bottom up. And I have. And there's been times where I've challenged myself, where I've called him for some advice for our church or something I was doing. And the advice that he gave me, I didn't like it. I wanted to do it differently. But I didn't do it differently because of the choice that I made a long time ago that I needed to have accountability and submission. And so I did it the way that he told me to do it. But never, again, never let a leader, a pastor, a church... Have dominion over your life. That's not biblical. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Hey, we'll have some uh, uh, Shannon and Dave and Josh and Amber. They'll be up to pray for you. If you'd like individual prayer, please come forward. Um, uh, grab some socks on your way out. Do some, some shop, shop sock on your way out. And uh, if uh, you didn't grab your tithe receipt, please. Your urine receipts are available. Please grab those on your way out. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. Father, as we sing this last song, I pray, Father, that we could quiet our hearts. And Lord, I know now lunch is calling and it's getting a few minutes late. And but Lord, I pray that we could, each one of us right now, just slow down for a minute and we can listen. Father, that we could hear your voice. Lord, if there's something you want to say to us, God, if there's something that we need to be forgiven of, Or maybe there's something in our heart we need to forgive somebody else. Maybe there's somebody in this room that we need to ask their forgiveness for. Or maybe there's something we just need to get right. Pray, Lord, as we worship you in this last song, God, that you'd minister. Father, that if if we need prayer, individual prayer, that we would come and ask the leaders and the pastors to pray for us. And Father, we thank you. And we pray blessing over this week. And Father, I ask blessing over the funeral service I'm going to do this week. this family, Lord, that I want to minister so bad to, Lord, and see him come to Jesus. I pray, Father, just for your Holy Spirit to go before me and prepare the way. And, Lord, I pray for the other folks in our church here today who have similar situations and family members and neighbors and folks they want to share Jesus with. I pray that you would give them the very words in that hour and that you prepare their hearts. And, Lord, that we would never talk to the people about God until we first talk to God about the people. So Jesus, we pray for the lost people in our our circles that we could be used to share the gospel with them. And Lord, if there's anybody in here today who doesn't know Jesus, I pray that right now as I pray, they would say, yes, Jesus, come in my heart. I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Let's worship the Lord.